In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Diana Wood from Bernstein's Boston office, and this episode features our senior European medtech analyst, Lisa Clive from London. This week, Lisa dives into the psychology behind why we eat and what we eat, how variety impacts our health and risk factors for disease, and if GLP-1s will make a difference. She then looks at the uptake of these new drugs and what the impact will be on the medtech world and beyond. So without further ado, welcome, Lisa. I'm so glad you're here again. Great, me too. So let's just jump right in. This is a question that could span so many levels, but why do we eat? So yeah, it's a good way to jump into it. So in November 2023, I wrote a weekend blast on this very topic. The note dug into why do we eat, but also what do we eat, and ultimately explored whether GLP-1s will make any difference. Now, everyone listening in on this conversation knows that we don't just eat because we are hungry. We eat to socialize. We eat out of habit. We eat when we're bored. We eat when we are stressed or sad. And our environment matters. Our friend group, our family matters, as these generally dictate our social norms. So all of these drivers are really important. And in light of the topic today, their influence will have a major impact on what America's and, frankly, the world's waistline actually will look like in 10 years' time in the era of GLP-1s. So we talked about the why, but can we dig into the what from your notes? What do we eat? So it's pretty clear in the modern world that very few people adhere to a diet that our bodies were actually built for. And we are absolutely surrounded by what is now referred to as ultra-processed foods, or UPFs. Just to give you some definitions here, processed food is basically anything that is altered from its original state, which is pretty much everything we eat except for fruit and raw vegetables. So yogurt or cheese is processed compared to milk via the process of fermentation, Although unless you're drinking it straight from the cow, even the milk we drink is processed, given that by law it has to be pasteurized. Then there's mechanical processing, which involves grinding or blending. So a hamburger, for example, is clearly a processed version of steak. But even cooking itself is a form of processing, which is technically referred to as as thermal processing, as using heat changes the characteristics of the food being cooked. Now, clearly not all of these kinds of processing are bad for us per se. But there's a growing recognition that ultra-processing is. And the main culprit here is chemical processing, where chemicals are used to enhance the flavor, the texture or appearance of food, or quite commonly preservatives are added to extend the shelf life of food. The science is constantly evolving, but it's becoming quite evident that this is really bad for humans. There's actually a book by Chris Van Tulliken called Ultra Processed People that does a deep dive on this topic. And frankly, I think this will become as influential as Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma that came out, I think, in around 2005. So the rule of thumb is basically that anything at your supermarket that comes in packaging and has a barcode is likely ultra processed. And frankly, before I started doing research on GLP-1s, I didn't appreciate how much of my own diet was ultra-processed, particularly since I absolutely hate to cook. So despite the fact that I'm fortunate enough to buy my groceries from a relatively high-end shop, I don't even have soda or juice or any of the classic junk foods in my house, 
I've historically been consuming a lot of garbage and I've been feeding it to my children too. I hear you on the cooking. That was one of my New Year's resolutions this year. I was like, domestic die, I am going to cook more. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so why are so many of us eating such unhealthy diets? I mean, we know what is healthy and unhealthy in these terms. So when there's such a growing awareness of how bad this all is, like why are we eating unhealthy still? So there's a lot of influences here too. I came across a term recently, which was obesogenic. So basically, the modern world is an obesogenic environment. So much of how we live and how we eat drives obesity. And so it's nearly impossible to get around that. There are system-level factors like the cost of different foods, where UPFs are so much cheaper than healthy foods. Also, the limited availability of high-quality foods for many people. Convenience is a big driver. It's the main reason why I don't cook very much. And of course, marketing and advertising play a huge role in what we eat. Meanwhile, low socioeconomic status has unsurprisingly been identified as the single biggest risk factor for an unhealthy diet, likely driven by all the systemic factors that I just mentioned. But the thing that really kills me is how bad things are getting for kids. So today, 20% of American kids have obesity, not just overweight, but obesity. And this is up from about 10% in the 1990s. Now, sedentary lifestyles, time on the computer, Xbox, et cetera, likely play a role. But on the food side of the equation, it's really a lack of education and awareness about healthy eating. But it's also the influence of big food, which frankly is perhaps as culpable as big tobacco was back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when those companies knew a lot about their products that they weren't telling the public. Yeah. I feel like that is what's so soul-crushing is just that the, the confidence that consumers can't have, that trust seems to be gone in not all Absolutely. of these companies. Yeah, but many of them. So I ask you the next question because I have been a full victim of this. My guilty pleasure are Ruffles potato chips, like full on. You are not alone. <laughs> okay, thank you. That and Doritos, like red 70 dye just coursing through my veins. They like make fun of me on the desk for the amount of chips, potato chips that I crush here. So I have to ask, can food be addictive? Is that what gets me to reach my hand in that bag time and time again until it's empty? I'd say absolutely. And I think way more of us are addicted than we appreciate because it's normalized in our culture. And this is one of the many drivers of the obesity crisis. What's been really interesting is I think on the back of the GLP-1s becoming so mainstream is there's this growing awareness of what is now called food noise. And it's basically a preoccupation with food, meaning that someone is just constantly thinking about their next bite. They're in the middle of breakfast and they're already considering what to have as a mid-morning snack. And then when they're eating their snack, they're thinking about what they want for lunch and so on. They just simply cannot get food out of their thoughts. And apparently, 57% of people who have overweight or obesity are plagued by this, according to a recent Weight Watchers survey. So yeah, while the DSM manual, which is the big sort of psychology Bible, doesn't classify food addiction as an actual disorder, it's out there and ultra-processed foods likely factor into the equation. The reason why you can't get your hand out of that bag of potato chips is if you have one bite, those products are basically designed for you to want a second bite and a third and a fourth and so on. Now, a few months ago, I read a fascinating book by Anna Lemke called Dopamine Nation. And she explains how humans are exquisitely tuned to react to the stimuli around us, which sadly produces some rather counterproductive behaviors in the modern world. 
Dr. Lemke explains how basically anything that gives us a quick shot of dopamine, whether it's nicotine, alcohol, gambling, Instagram, or yes, even food, and particularly certain kinds of food, actually ends up lowering our baseline dopamine levels after that shot wears off. So we're a little bit emotionally down compared to where we were before, which of course then results in us wanting another hit of that little happy chemical called dopamine. And the first half of the book is frankly a bit depressing because it just describes how humans are basically designed to become addicts. But then the second part of the book is really inspiring as it has all these amazing little nuggets of wisdom about how to harness the dopamine system to propel you towards a happier, more fulfilled existence. And the bottom line is moderation and mindfulness and also apparently 30 seconds of freezing cold water at the end of your morning shower, which I have yet to embrace because I just hate being cold. But back to our podcast topic, GLP-1s may not just be about curbing food addiction. GLP-1s react with receptors in your gut, but you actually have the same kind of receptors in your brain too. And people on GLP-1s have reported that their food noise just disappears, which is pretty amazing. And this, of course, has implications for all sorts of other cravings, too. There are clinical trials going on that are testing GLP-1s in several different types of substance abuse, nicotine and alcohol in particular. My colleagues Trevor Sterling and Alexia Howard actually touched on this in a prior podcast around alcohol and ultra-processed food. So I would just point listeners to that episode for more on the topic. But it's definitely a really exciting space to watch right now. Okay. We have to put a proverbial pin in the cold plunge water situation because I've been dialed into that recently. But moving on to what you were just describing about GLP-1s. So they've entered the picture and what makes these drugs so special? So let's just start with what GLP-1 agonists are. GLP-1s are part of a class called incredin mimetics, which also includes similar molecules called GIPs, and there's a few others. Like the insulin that is used by diabetics, GLP-1 drugs are lab-made versions of peptides that naturally exist in the human body. These are pretty incredible drugs. They are really effective at managing diabetes, as well as prediabetes, but they also work as appetite suppressants and in a few other ways that help with weight loss. And while there are common side effects like gastrointestinal symptoms— they are generally very safe and well-tolerated, with serious issues like pancreatitis being actually pretty rare. Now, they've been around for a long time. They were first introduced in 2005 to treat diabetes, which started what I'll call the 1.0 era. In 2015 came the first GLP-1 approval for obesity, but it was actually using one of those 1.0 drugs just in a higher dose. Then in 2018, semaglutide, which we know as azempic in diabetes and Wegovy in obesity, first launched in diabetes, but with a much better weight loss profile than prior GLP-1s. But the 2.0 era really only started in 2022 when Eli Lilly's trizepatide was launched in diabetes as Manjaro, the first combination drug that was both a GLP-1 and GIP agonist. Now, late last year, it got approval in obesity under the brand name ZepBound. And while Wegovy showed 15 kilograms of weight loss in its clinical trial, the average weight loss for ZepBound was 22 kgs. And even more impressive, while 32% of trial participants on Wegovy lost 20% or more of their body weight, 
In the ZEP-bound trial, it was 45%. So when we think about where this drug category goes from here, I think the 3.0 generation of triple combination therapies like retitrutide and a few other variations could be even more exciting. In addition to even greater weight loss, there's certainly room for improvement in terms of reducing GI side effects, as well as minimizing muscle loss. Okay. I love that background and history because I have to say I wasn't up to speed on it myself. So today, despite all the press and stock market frenzy, and even what I see in my little corner of suburbia when I go home, there aren't actually a lot of people on these drugs. Isn't that right? Yeah, there's probably about five to six million people in the U.S. on GLP-1s today, so about 2% of the U.S. adult population. And this is split into about half on the older diabetes drugs and half on the newer GLP-1s that have better weight loss profiles. Meanwhile, ex-U.S. use is still very modest. So then why is that? What, What is contributing to numbers being so low? There are a lot of reasons. First, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk simply can't make these drugs fast enough. My colleague Nithya has written about the supply chain issues in a fair amount of detail, including both the active pharmaceutical ingredient or API, but also the fill finish capacity. So when the drugs are actually put into injector pens and there are bottlenecks in both of those areas right now, but all in Nithya thinks that capacity constraints are likely to ease by the end of 2025. But for now, those bottlenecks are real. Last week, Nova Nordisk announced that they have just eased sales restrictions on the lower initiation dose in the U.S. so more new patients can get onto WeGoV. They were actually really restricting that initiation dose because they want continuity for the people who are on the drugs, so they effectively weren't allowing new patients on. Meanwhile, I have a friend who is a GP in the NHS here in the UK, and she's been told not to prescribe GLP-1s to anyone new, including diabetics, as the UK simply does not have enough supply right now. Wow. Okay. But then isn't cost a problem too? Yeah, that's the second part of the equation. The list price for these drugs is 1200 for Manjaro, or rather ZepBound, and 1300 for Wegovi. So these are expensive drugs. That's per month. The net price is a lot lower than this, probably around $500 to $600. And of course, for the patient in the U.S., you know, with insurance, the patient perhaps pays only $50 of this. But the problem is that at a cost of, say, $6,000 per patient per year, if half of the U.S. obese population got on this drug, that would cost the U.S. healthcare system $300 billion. And just to put that in perspective, every year about $630 billion is spent on all pharmaceuticals combined in the U.S. So clearly $300 billion for one new category of drugs is a rather big pill to swallow. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Okay, so that <laughs> oh, answers... absolutely pun intended. <laughs> Okay, so that answers the question about insurance coverage. We can just check that off the list right now. Not happening. But what about the SELECT trial? So the reason why the SELECT headlines last August stirred up this frenzy is that the stats were amazing. There was a 20% reduction in major cardiovascular events for people on Wegovy. This is really game-changing as it pivots GLP-1s from being just weight loss and diabetes drugs to medication for cardiovascular disease. So in SELECT, it was being used in obese patients who had existing cardiovascular disease, who therefore were at very high risk 
of heart attacks and strokes. So the results were really impressive. And then with flow and smart data coming in 2024, these are two other trials that Novo Nordisk is running. These will also likely become chronic kidney disease drugs. So I've crunched through the numbers and between diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and CKD, all of which are pretty prevalent, we're talking about 75 million Americans with one or more of these comorbidities. So effectively, of the 106 million Americans who suffer from obesity, around 75% of them will likely get access to GLP-1 coverage by, say, mid-2025 without a single insurer or Medicare actually having to cover the obesity indication itself. But of course, until the price comes down further, it still simply can't get paid for, even if it does end up saving the system in hospitalization costs later down the line. So I think while there will be coverage, there will likely be a lot of restrictions, prior authorizations, step therapy, et cetera. Okay. So what will get these drugs down to an affordable level? Ultimately, it's going to be competition. My colleague Nithya has also written about when generics are coming, which at least for the older drugs like Ozempic in diabetes could be by 2031, possibly sooner. That's both quite far away, but also not so far away. But there are also other players coming into the branded market. Pfizer, Zealand, Viking, and even Amgen have candidates that are currently in phase two. So this could be a much more competitive market in three to five years time, which will inevitably bring with it lower ASPs. So I love this conversation because I feel like you and I share a mutual affinity for Peter Atia, his work and podcasts, and, and even his book from last year, Outlive. But it highlights something that we're discussing now in that obesity increases the risk of many health problems and chronic disease, just, just one of the risk factors that increases health problems and chronic disease. But just how much so does obesity play a role in that? Like, What is the relationship between BMI and the prevalence of chronic disease and even mortality? So yeah, there clearly is a correlation between a higher BMI and chronic disease. This is most pronounced for diabetes, where 7% of normal weight people have type 2 diabetes. It's about 10% for overweight and 23% for people with obesity. Hypertension shows big jumps too between weight categories, where prevalence is 31% for normal weight, about 41% for overweight, and then it goes up to 58% for obese people. And then turning to mortality... A male with severe obesity, say a BMI over 40, is 30% less likely to reach the age of 70 than a normal weight person. And for females, it's probably about 15% less likely. So meanwhile, as a slight tangent, I've gotten asked a lot recently, what do we actually die from? And I found some really good data looking at U.S. mortality statistics from 1980 and 2019 where just to anchor us, over that time period, life expectancy went from 74 years to 79 years. The biggest takeaway is that death from cardiovascular disease has come down significantly over the past 30 years. It was 48% of all deaths in 1980, and it was 28% in 2019. Now, let's just think about that for a second, because that seems completely at odds with the trajectory of the average American waistline over that same time period. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I always love hearing that mortality rates are going down, but what does that mean in the context of everything else we've just been talking about? So it really means that despite the huge increase in obesity, which over that time period went from about 23% to 42% of the adult population, 
What I'd say is that diagnostics and drugs and surgical interventions have made a massive impact on cardiovascular disease at the same time. So now cancer is more prevalent in the death charts, as well as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and COPD, among others. And given the impressive select trial results, GLP-1s could shift us even further away from cardiovascular death over the next 20 or 30 years. Okay, so with GLP-1s in the frame, is it just about weight loss or does what we eat still even matter? What we eat definitely still matters. We know that there are specific health issues that relate to eating or not eating certain things. Low fiber intake can lead to increased risk of bowel cancer. High salt consumption contributes to high blood pressure. And adequate calcium intake is critical for bone health. Meanwhile, limited food diversity, so if you just kind of eat the same things over and over, can actually harm your gut microbiome. And for the gut microbiome proponents out there, they talk about eating 30 different types of fruit and vegetables every week. All that being said, the SELECT trial showed that weight loss alone, although also likely the benefit of the GLP-1 itself, does make a difference. And SELECT is really notable because it was about as real world as a clinical trial can get. It was five years long. The patients weren't getting any diet or exercise advice. Yet the average weight loss was still an impressive 9% of body weight. Now, keep in mind, for semaglutide in the phase three trial for obesity approval, it was about 15%. So there was a notable difference, but that was with diet and exercise sort of coaching along the way. So in select, assuming people continued eating their largely unhealthy diets and having minimal exercise, the GLP-1 intervention alone did save lives. But of course, the best option is to both lose weight and eat more healthy food. And there's so much exciting science going on right now in this arena, from the Zoe program in the UK, which I've actually tried, to Weight Watchers about to start a clinical trial in partnership with the Cleveland Clinic. And so for listeners who are interested in this topic in particular, there's a few really good podcasts out there. You mentioned Peter Atia. He does a lot of good podcasts on this. And Huberman Lab, which is a Stanford academic named Andrew Huberman, they do a lot on how to live a long, healthy life. And sadly, it does not include a lot of Doritos. <laughs> which is heartbreaking. But I love their pods and it just, you know, inspires me to be a better eater. Okay. So the upside from GLP-1s in the near term is that severely obese patients now have the opportunity to have access to medical care that they previously were not eligible for based on their BMI. Is that correct? This is an initial positive. Yeah. So I'd say turning this whole discussion to my actual coverage of med tech, I think that's fair. This is particularly relevant for hip and knee replacements. 9% of the U.S. adult population is severely obese, meaning a BMI of over 40. And there are a lot of surgeons out there who won't operate unless someone's BMI is below 35, possibly even lower if the patient has diabetes or other comorbidities, because the risk of surgery and anesthesia in these patients are just too high. So for orthopedics, GLP-1s could actually increase the patient population in the near term by bringing these individuals into the addressable patient population. Meanwhile, Novo Nordisk was doing a study on whether GLP-1s could help patients with obesity have less knee pain from their osteoarthritis. And they actually just announced the results a week ago, and they were positive, unsurprisingly. 
But while these patients are in less pain, they still have arthritis, and that cartilage is not going to regrow. So while it may push back the timeline for a knee replacement, they are still very much candidates for surgery. So net-net, I'm not particularly worried about any headwind from GLP-1s for orthopedics in the next decade plus. There's a few other subsegments that I think are in a bit more of the firing line. There's a focus on sleep apnea right now. That is clearly a very weight-related disease state. Dialysis is problematic from the perspective of, I think, the flow and SMART trials could end up meaning that more patients live long enough to progress from CKD to end-stage kidney disease. However, in the SELECT trial, basically being on these drugs massively reduces people's chances of getting diabetes. So if somebody has prediabetes, goes on a GLP-1, the SELECT trial showed a 73% reduction in transitioning to diabetes. And so that's where I think very long-term, not even in the next five years, possibly even the next seven to 10 years, but very long-term markets like dialysis could look quite different as and when these drugs are really broadly used. Okay. So it's really just talking about the TAM for a lot of these sectors and subsectors. Like how does this change the total addressable market? And so when you think about med tech investors, will GLP-1s change the TAM for their investable world overall? So we dug into this in a recent note through a slightly more nuanced question. It was, is there an optimal level for, say, the average BMI in the U.S. and beyond where mortality is lower but where there will still be significant demand for medtech products. So there is no easy way to actually quantify that. But directionally, we think that GLP-1s are not only not that much of a threat, but like the ACEs and ARBs before them in hypertension, they could be a tailwind by keeping people alive longer. Because in doing all this research, I discovered there is one thing that is way worse for you than being obese, and that is being old. So, but seriously, to give you some stats on that, I mentioned earlier that 23% of obese people have diabetes. Prevalence of type 2 diabetes in the over 60 population is actually 30%. And same if you look at something like CKD, where 17% of obese patients have CKD, but the prevalence in the over 60 population is 23%. And then for hypertension, it's even worse. I didn't appreciate, but once we hit 60 three out of four of us will have high blood pressure. So it's a win-win of sorts if we live longer and more of us need various med tech products at a later date. But of course, the best way to do it is to live a long and very healthy life and then suddenly drop dead at the age of 85 or 95 or 105, whatever you'd like that number to be. <laughs> so true. And just to get to that number, we need to do more rucking and zone two working out, I guess, if we're following a TI, in addition to all the other things. Absolutely resistance training and attempting to eat more good food than bad food. It's so true. This has been amazing, Lisa. Thank you so much for your time. It was so good to catch up with you. Thank you for having me. It's always really fun. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research. 
If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.